I'm April. I'm Matt. We've been together about 16 years. We've been married for 11 years. We met um, at, at work. We've been together ever since. So I worked at Whirlpool and I worked on an assembly line and this kid named Justin was fairly new, worked across from me and um, we started talking one day and he was telling me about he belonged to a youth group and talking about a youth pastor and all these great things and um, it opened a whole conversation about church and I had told him that my husband and I were talking about uh, starting to join a church and he told us they were building uh, a Grace in Tiffin. We started coming to Grace regularly uh, in January of 2020. My father had just passed away like December 27th. Uh, for me there was like this this huge loss in my life and I was looking for comfort and she'd been talking about somebody she worked with. He was kind of pointing us towards Grace and, and that's when we started coming. I came in, met with AJ and kind of we had a little conversation. He said, do you want to turn your life over to Christ? I said, absolutely. And, and, I, and we turned it over. It's all you. Come into my life, take it over, do whatever it is you need to do with me, put me where you need me to be. When I came here, I felt welcome. I didn't I didn't feel broken anymore, and that, that started really right away. It's just really neat to listen to the stories in the Bible and to read about them and to learn about them, because I knew nothing. My experience with the Bible was very minuscule. My meeting with, with Pastor AJ and sitting down, I told him my story. I didn't get into great detail. He asked me if I was ready to give my life to Christ, and he said the sinner's prayer, and we prayed together. For me, I know I don't have to do this alone. I have Christ with me. There's a peacefulness about that, even when I'm screwing it up every day and I'm not getting it right. There's there's a peaceful side to this. I accept the teachings of the Bible. I accept what I learned here, and I try to apply it to my life. And it's not always about acquisition of knowledge. It's about application. How do, how do I use this stuff in my daily life? And what the Bible teaches me, what was good 2,000 years ago, still translates today. You know, those teachings and those moral convictions. I. I make mistakes all the time. There's conviction in my heart. You know, I feel it tugging on me. And I, I try to set that right. But now I have an ace in the hole. I have Christ in my life, right? I didn't have that before. There's hope for you out there. Uh, I found it by coming to Christ. I found it by coming to grace. I found a better way to live. The journey's in the ride. So buckle up, right? That is grace. You know, that's what we're here for. That's what it's all about, watching people come to Christ and, uh, and see God change their lives. And uh, that's, that's the vision of grace. That's what we're going to be talking about the next, this week and the next three weeks. Kind of want to get started this week, but, uh, but I wanted to, to stop and make sure that we're all on the same page. But so we're, we're beginning this series, EO3. It stands for, if you haven't caught that yet, Everyone on Three. And we're going to look at a passage of Scripture, a real familiar passage in Luke 19, familiar story of Zacchaeus. And in that passage, at the end of that, Jesus gives his vision. And that's our vision uh, as he seeks and saves the lost. And so we'll get there in just a minute. That'll be uh, Luke chapter 19. But before we get there, just want to make a com comment on uh, our big event Friday night. Did you guys enjoy that? So I, I got to tell you, I was sweating it because that morning we had a level three emergency. Nobody's supposed to be out, the snow and all that. 
And, uh, and I kept telling the staff, I think, you know, they should drop this by noon. I think they'll drop it by noon. And, and I, before noon, they actually uh, dropped it down to a level two. And, and so we, and, and I had been thinking, well, originally that maybe we'd have about a thousand people there. That's just this one campus. And, uh, and then I thought, well, because of all the snow, maybe 800 if, if, you know, things go really well. But I got to tell you, I think there was a dynamic going on with three days, no school. Moms were out there digging them out. You know, they were like, no, we are going to this thing tonight. We are not canceling, you know. And uh, we, it was great. And we had over a thousand people there on Friday night and just had a wonderful time. And uh, just uh, thanks, thanks for helping us make that happen. Good stuff. And so we're going to talk about a familiar story, Zacchaeus. Most of you are or a lot of you know this as a familiar story. Some of you will have never heard of it. But uh, this is coming toward the end of Jesus's ministry. And I want to set a little bit of the context. Jesus is now going to head to Jerusalem where he knows he's going to be killed. On his way there, he plans to go through Jericho. He's told his disciples that he's going to be killed. But they're not really getting it. They don't fully understand what he's talking about. And so, again, Jesus' plan is to go to Jerusalem by way of Jericho. On his way to Jericho, he runs into a rich young ruler. This is another uh, interaction, another encounter that Jesus had. But just want to summarize that. And, And the rich young ruler has a great reputation. He's a super moral guy. Everybody likes him. Uh, Good reputation in the community. And he comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus the question, the, the question that all of us should, should, should want to know. And that is, what, what must I do to get to heaven? What do I need to do to make sure that I'm going to go to heaven? And Jesus answers his question. Jesus says, you want to go to heaven, keep the commandments. And then Jesus elaborates on that just a little bit. He reminds them, Never sleep with anyone except for your spouse. And then Jesus now has already in his ministry said, oh, and by the way, if you even look at somebody with lust, you're committing adultery in your heart. And then Jesus says, don't murder anybody. But Jesus has already told us before this in his ministry that if we even hate somebody, it's like that sin of murder is our heart because we'd like to get rid of them. We just didn't have the guts to do it. And Jesus continues a little bit. He says, never steal, never lie. Always honor your father and your mother. And he lays all that out. And amazingly, this rich young ruler, very moral person, but he answers this way. He says, I've done that. I've done all that. And so here's this guy. he's He's a good guy, but he can't see his own sin. And then Jesus tacks one on for him. Jesus says, okay, well, one thing you still lack, sell all your possessions and follow me. And that bums the guy out. He's wealthy and he leaves. He's bummed out. He leaves Jesus and he doesn't follow Jesus. He walks away. And then Jesus says this, As this happens, and there's people standing around, his disciples are with him, and he says, For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. 
And, and they're all standing there going, whoa. And they who heard it said, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. And so that all happens. Now Jesus is now entering Jericho. And at that time, actually it's like that today. I've been there. It's kind of the same way. Jericho is like two places right next to each other. One place they call Jericho is the ancient city of Jericho. It's a big hill, and there's a bunch of ruins and excavations. Back in the first century, there was just a bunch of ruins there, and it was uninhabited even then. And then about a mile, half, a mile and a half away in the first century, there was the booming town of Jericho, which was a main trade route. And so both places are called Jericho. When Jesus enters into Jericho, as he comes in, there's a poor, blind beggar who hears the commotion because Jesus, he's got some traction in his ministry now. He's kind of famous. There's people flocking around. People are saying things. This blind beggar, he catches on what's happening. And so he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Very interesting that he uses these words because when he's saying Jesus, son of David, and people are trying to get him to be quiet, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. When he says son of David, he's saying Jesus, Messiah, save me. This is a public declaration that Jesus is the one that we've been waiting for all these centuries. He's the guy. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus then calls him over, commends him for his faith, and then he heals him. And the guy can see. And so, and this sets up now Jesus entering in to Jericho. It's kind of interesting because we have this guy that had everything that came to Jesus, plus a good reputation, and he walks away with Jesus with nothing. And then we have this blind beggar who has nothing, and he interacts with Jesus, and he walks away with Jesus with everything. And now Jesus goes into Jericho, and he meets this guy, Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus is dramatically converted. I mean, Zacchaeus becomes a believer. His whole life is converted. And that's really what I want to talk about, conversion. Conversion. The first thing that I want to point out is that the, really the necessity of conversion. And, 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 I, and I know that's a weird thing to say, the necessity of conversion, but I mean that like this. True Christianity is not a religious process. True Christianity is a conversion. It's not just a process, it's a conversion. Here's the way we think today, or the way a lot of people think. If you're here in Ohio and you meet somebody who's a Hindu or a Muslim, you think those people need converted. But if you've grown up in a church somewhere, whatever church, then you tend to think not in conversion language. You tend to think, oh, well, they've grown up in the church. They just need to keep trying and, you know, do, do a little bit better in their life. And that's not what true Christianity is to try to live a good life. You see, Jesus did not come to make us nicer. Jesus did not die to make us more moral or to live a more moral life. 
those things are good, and those things do typically happen when somebody is converted. But it's conversion. That's necessary. That's why Jesus came. Remember, Jesus had an interaction with one of, the, with one of Israel's greatest teachers. Jesus refers to him as one of Israel's greatest teachers, a guy named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, who's in the religious system, he's a good guy, and he even likes Jesus. And he sneaks off to meet with Jesus in the night. This guy's a great reputation. He lives by all the commands pretty much, you know, as much as they did back then. And so this guy, very religious, very moral, super reputation, kind of like that rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus at night, and what does Jesus say to him? You must be born again. You need to be converted, he's saying. Your life isn't good enough. You need a change. You need to be converted. And so the problem is we kind of picture conversion as some desperate, dramatic, exterior, cha- exterior kind of change in our life. But that's probably not the best way for us to picture it. I mean, it does happen that way sometimes. But really what conversion is... It's a change in our heart where we've decided that we need to cling to Jesus and hang on to him and and follow him. I mean, he's all we have. We just cling to Jesus. And then we're changed from the inside out. It's a heart thing that shows up there first and then that from the inside changes our outward behavior. So conversion is necessary, but the question is, how does it happen? How does conversion happen? Well, we we saw, like in in the video before, um, April and Matt. How does it happen? That's the circumstance of conversion. And God uses all kinds of circumstances in our life. If you're focused in on what Matt and April were saying, Matt had experienced a a significant loss just a few weeks prior to coming to Grace. And at the same time, April is working at Whirlpool on an assembly line, and, and there's some teenager there that's talking to her about Grace. And then as they talk more and more, and and the and the teenagers all pumped up about it, and then he says, Oh, and we're building a new church in Tiffin. And so those circumstances come together and they end up going to Grace and Tiffin and end up both getting saved. So that's the circumstance of conversion. But it happens differently for different people. For example, I want to hear you want, want you to hear one more story here, Bradley. Bradley Bennett. My name's Bradley Bennett. My life before accepting Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. was great, I thought. Everything was good. Uh, beautiful wife, kids, family that I love. Um, all at the same time, I was living in sin and had a lot of fear and doubt, living with addiction. Thanksgiving Day, I get a text from my boss telling me that my coworker, good friend, and apprentice, Dwayne, had uh, died, had passed away from pneumonia. I went to that funeral and I couldn't, you know, I mean, seeing him in that casket was one of the hardest things I've ever seen. After that, I went back to work, and 
was during COVID and everyone around me was getting sick real bad. And sure enough, a couple weeks later, I was laying in, laying in bed sick with pneumonia. You know what I mean? Just like everybody else. Thoughts were in a terrible place. Even though I had my beautiful wife taking care of me, you know, medical student, uh, friends and family sending food, and tools to help me get through the hard time. And I have never felt more alone in my entire life. I was so far from God, so far from my creator, so far from Jesus. It was January 1st in the middle of the night, I couldn't breathe. And I was laying there and uh, I prayed to God that if he could give me my breath back in my lungs, that, that I would live my life to serve him. And uh, sure enough, he did. He pulled me through it and a couple weeks later, I was at church every weekend with my mom and back at Grace and life was getting better. So at church, that uh, they had a thing called Fight Club come up and I jumped on the opportunity and I was definitely the best thing that ever happened to me. March 14th, 2021, Chad Laughlin invited me to his house. Uh, he sat down with me and uh, he invited me to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. He had me pray, we prayed together, and uh, I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior that day. And it was that small act of kindness from one man to another that, that made the difference in my life. You know, I grew up without a father, so to, to have a man that actually cared about me was a big deal to me. So life after accepting Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior has been better and better every day. Uh, People that know me don't even believe that I'm the same person. They uh, wake up every day with gratitude. Gratitude to be able to breathe, first and foremost. Gratitude to be able to smell and taste. Gratitude for my family, my church, everything. I just, gratitude changed everything in my life for sure, 100%. So the Lord's definitely brought me love, joy, and peace in my heart that I've, I've never had. I've never felt that before. <laughs> something that can only come through faith. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> Everybody's circumstance is different. Whether it's loss, uh, talking to a coworker, health issues, or, uh, you know, in Bradley's case, joining Fight Club and then through that process, meeting with Chad, who led him to Christ. Happens all different ways. And here at Grace, we are trying to take advantage of all those ways. We're trying to leverage everything we have to make, to help people make this decision to follow Christ. So we're in this familiar story of Zacchaeus, and that's in Luke 19, beginning in verse 1. And, and we're just kind of walk through that quickly and just remind ourselves of some things that are happening, because this is Zacchaeus's circumstance. So talking about Jesus, Luke 19, 1, it says, he entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. So a lot of us know this story. Zacchaeus is not just a tax collector. 
He's a chief tax collector. What that means is he contracted, he bid uh, to Rome to raise a certain amount of tribute that would go to Rome. And so he was the highest bidder, so he got that. So he's obligated to send Rome a certain amount of money. But in order to do that, he's got to collect taxes from all the people. And then whatever he collects that's above what he has to send to Rome, that goes to him and that makes him wealthy. And so remember at this point in history, Rome is an occupying power and they, they leverage this tax or this tribute on these people. They're basically stripping the people and the country of their wealth so that goes to Rome except for part of it stays to pay their army that then in turn is keeping these people subjugated. And so because of that, he, Zacchaeus is seen as a traitor, a, a Roman collaborator, bad news, not welcome in polite society. Nobody likes him is kind of the way that goes. So everyone's circumstance is different. That's Zacchaeus's. But he hears that Jesus is coming and he's heard something about Jesus probably, so he's curious. He just wants to see him, uh, which tells us that he's persistent as we see the story, and he's intellectually open. But he's also probably mocked by the crowd. I mean, nobody's cutting him any slack. Nobody likes him. And so he's got two immediate obstacles. One is there's a huge crowd around Jesus, so it's hard to see him. Number two, he's short, and so that's not helping him see Jesus. And as a matter of fact, as we look at that, archaeology excavations show us that the average height of a man in this area at this time in history was 5'3 to 5'5. And so if he's a short guy, that puts him probably five foot or under five foot, sort of Danny DeVito height. And so he, he can't see anything, but he's resourceful. And so he, he figures out, well, here's the way Jesus is going to come, runs ahead, gets up in a tree. So he's got the vantage point. And then it continues in verse five. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for today. I must stay at your house. And he hurried and he came down and he received him gladly. It's interesting because we don't know exactly how Jesus knew Zacchaeus's name. I mean, a lot of us are thinking, well, he's God. He knows everything. But, but actually, for most of Jesus' ministry, he voluntarily set aside his divine attributes. And so it could be that he knew that as a divine attribute. He could know anything he wants. But it also could be that he just picked up on Zacchaeus' name because everybody mocking Zacchaeus. Again, nobody likes him. But either way, he invites that he basically invites himself to Zacchaeus' house. And here, Zacchaeus, who only wanted a glimpse of Jesus, just maybe wanted to see him and hear a little bit about what he had to say, all of a sudden, he's a main player. He's coming to his house. He'll host Jesus in his home. And he receives Jesus with joy. And then all of a sudden, in this town, the tables are flipped. Jesus has invited this guy, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is the religious outsider, Zacchaeus is, is not in polite company. And here all of a sudden, Jesus, who everybody wants to see, is staying at Zacchaeus' house. All of a sudden, Zacchaeus now is the religious insider, the spiritual insider. He's going to find out stuff. He's going to host Jesus. He's going to get his questions answered more than anybody else. That's how it plays out. Verse 7, when they saw it, the crowd, they all began to grumble. 
saying, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And here's the crowd, right? They love Jesus' miracles. They were all shouting when the blind man could see again, Bartimaeus. But now all of a sudden, he's going to the chief tax collector's house, and they don't like that. They don't like his associations. And so they grumble. And even Zach can catch that Jesus is bearing disdain from the crowd just because that he's hanging out with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus knows that Jesus' love for him or acceptance of him or whatever you want to call that is costing Jesus' reputation with the crowd. It's lessening Jesus' reputation with the people around. Zacchaeus gets that. Of course, we know that just a little while later in Jerusalem, the crowd's going to get way more hostile than this, right? And so here we are. There's a necessity of conversion. There's the circumstance of conversion, but that's actually not enough. A circumstance can lead you to consider Jesus. That's not enough. We have to have the key to conversion. And the key to conversion is the gospel. It's the good news of what Christ has done for us. We must understand the gospel, this good news, and we must respond to it. Understanding it is not enough. We have to respond to the gospel. And the reason Jesus, remember, at this point in history, the reason he's heading to Jerusalem and passing through Jericho is because ultimately he's going to die for our sins. He's already told his disciples that. Because we deserve a penalty for our sins. And and here's the thing. This is what's different about conversion. Every other religion basically says, hey, if you want to be okay with God, then here's these things that you need to do. This is how you live a moral life. You need to do this and this and this. And you start climbing this ladder to get you closer to God. You start living a certain way. And that, that's what everybody thinks as far as religion is concerned. But that's not Christianity. Christianity is different. You see, in those religions, it's a process and it's never done. You never arrive. You never know if you've climbed high enough. You never know if you'll be accepted by God when you die. You just know you're in the running. You know, that's completely opposite of Christianity and the gospel. The problem is some churches have turned Christianity into a process just like these other religions. It's the natural thing we do as human beings. They turn Christianity into a process, but that's the opposite of the gospel, opposite of what Scripture is teaching us. And we, we know this because we talk to people all the time. And we'll say things like, how do you know? You're saying you're a Christian? Some people will just be like, well, yeah, I'd like to think so. Or some people, you'll ask them, well, how do you know you're going to go to heaven? And they'll say, are you sure? Or you'll say, are you sure you're going to go to heaven? And they'll say, I think so. Well, based on what? And they'll, uh, you know, I talk to people all the time about this. Based on what? And then they'll say, well, I've, I've tried to live a good life. 
And they'll say, well, you know, if they're a church person, they'll say, well, I go to church on Sundays. I do this. I do that. I pay my taxes. I'm I'm a good spouse. I'm a good parent. You know, all these things. I do all these things. I I shoveled my neighbor's driveway. So that's why I think I'm going to go to heaven. That's the opposite of what God is teaching us in the gospel. It's the opposite of what Jesus said. Because when people answer that, and, and then they'll say, and then say, well, then why don't you know you're going to heaven? Because I just don't know if I've been good enough. And when we hear that, what's the response? Nobody's good enough. Nobody's good enough. Nobody's good enough. None of us are good enough. Only Jesus is good enough. And that's what people miss. It's just Jesus. He reached out to us by paying the penalty that we all deserve. And this is a huge problem for people in our culture today. Is this. We are all guilty. We have all sinned against God intentionally or unintentionally. doesn't matter. God created us. He gave us life. He told us how to live. And none of us could do it. We've all sinned against him. And because God is perfectly just, we have to pay a penalty for that, which justice demands. And the penalty for all of us is separation from God forever in a place called hell. I, Kevin Pinkerton, deserve eternity separated from God in hell. That's what I deserve. That's the right punishment for my crimes against God, and it's yours too. That's what the entire Bible is teaching us. But God loves us. So he made a way by allowing his son Jesus to come to earth and then make his way to Jerusalem, which is what he's doing here. And in Jerusalem, as he's told his disciples, he is going to die for our sins. But it doesn't count for us unless we respond to him on his terms, and that is simply receiving this gift of salvation. Salvation from what? From the penalty that we deserve. We are saved from that only through faith. Just like Bradley told us. Only through faith. It's the only way we can get it. It's the only way we can receive it. And if we receive it, then we'll want to follow him. We'll want to love him back. And so in this passage, Zacchaeus is a rich man who goes through the eye of a needle. He does what's impossible for him to do, but is possible for God to do for us. He becomes a believer. Now, when someone responds to the gospel... When, when they understand the key to conversion is this news, Christ died for us, and through faith we can be forgiven. If somebody has done that, then the next thing is we'll see the sign of conversion. The sign of conversion. And that just means it shows up. If we get how much Jesus loves us, and we accept that love through faith, then it will change our lives. We'll start loving him back. And then, so in the story here, later, either during dinner or after dinner, and, and just a reminder that in the first century, especially in a rich man's house, 
a dinner with a, a famous teacher like Jesus would be a semi-public affair. As many people that could fit in the house would usually be invited into the house, and then other people could stand around the courtyard, and then if that was full, other people could stand out on the streets, and it was mostly open-air windows and all that, and so they could look in and listen in on what's happening. So, so here's the context. Now verse 8. Zacchaeus, during this, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold... He, he's saying, look, Lord. He's saying, behold, Lord, half my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And so in this whole encounter, Zacchaeus' faith is never mentioned. But his actions show that his faith is present in his life. We see his faith by what he does. Even that's what Jesus says. His heart is changed. And it shows up in his life. We have a way of saying that here at Grace. Don't embarrass me like first service did, all right? We have four Ds. Actually, Jess, Jess just said them on a video earlier in the service. So get going with me. Discover truth. We want to help people discover truth, decide on Jesus, demonstrate change, Deploy for others. All right, you guys, I set you up better, but you did. You, you blew the first service out of the water there. And so, yeah, demonstrate change. That's what we call it. And there's three signs of Zacchaeus. We want signs of conversion, three signs in, that show up in Zacchaeus's life. First of all, joy. Look, Lord, in, in the original language, that comes out a little more. Look, Lord, check this out. He's joyful. He receives Jesus gladly, invites him to his house, we don't know how much time passes, but at some point he stops and says, look, Lord, half my possessions I give to the poor. Half my possessions I give away. And then second, we see generosity. It's not that he's just giving stuff away, half his possessions. Well, nowhere is that a requirement. God wants us to give, and as God's people, he tells us, commands us to give. But not half. I mean, you know, there was a 10% principle that was before the law, carried through in the law, among some other things. We have at the very end of the Old Testament, Malachi saying you've robbed God, but not half. He's giving half away. And then not only do we see joy and generosity, we also see that he's making his past wrongs right. He says, and in addition to that, if I've cheated anybody... I'm going to pay them back. By the way, if you cheated somebody, the Old Testament law said you had to pay them back plus 20%. You had to pay them back 120% of what you took from them. So they get their original 100% back and another 20%. But that's not what Zacchaeus says. He says, if I have cheated, it, and by the way, as we look at the Greek, it's not like, hey, if I cheated anybody, if somebody could come and show me, convince me that I've cheated them, I'll pay. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this is suggesting that he knows he's cheated people. And he's taking the initiative to make it right. Those people whom I've cheated, I will give back to them four times as much. He knows he's cheated. He knows he's going to do this. That's what's happening here. By any standard, he's being generous. It's the opposite response of the rich young ruler, by the way. 
who when it came down to his money, he's like, no thanks, I'm out. So Jesus, is, Jesus responds to Zacchaeus when Zacchaeus says this, but just know that his remarks are really intended, he's responding to what Zacchaeus just said, but his remarks are intended for the people who are listening in, most of which hate Zacchaeus. And that's in the next verse, verse 9. And Jesus said to him, to Zacchaeus, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. And so son of Abraham, a lot of people say, well, that means that he happened to be Jewish and he, he probably was Jewish. We don't know that for sure. But son of Abraham means he believed like Abraham believed. And because he believed was declared righteous, Scripture says. Jesus isn't saying, hey, because you're giving money away, now you've become saved. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, hey, I know you're saved because it's changed your life. I've changed your life. I know you're saved because of what you're doing. I know you're saved because you're giving your money away. And the question is, do you know that you're saved? Where does that land with you? Has salvation come to you? Because if you truly put your faith in Jesus, it will show up in your life, some of which will be joy, generosity, and making things that you've done wrong right if possible. You can't always do that, but if you can, you do. And so, have you done that? And we're starting this series, EO3, and, and it's really a time for us to, to focus, and I'll get back to that in just a moment, but kind of focus where our church is heading. But before we did that, I mean, I'm supposed to be preaching on something else, but before we got there, you know, I just like, we need to just make sure everybody's on, on, on board here. Because it's amazing how often I talk to people even church people. And it blows my mind because I feel like I'm saying this all the time. I say, well, how do you know you're going to go to heaven? Or, and, well, because I do, I do, I do, I do, I do. I think, I think, I think. That's not the right answer. Because God gave me a gift. God is, because Jesus died for me. Because I put my faith in him. Why are you going to go to heaven? I shouldn't go to heaven. But Jesus says I get to go because I put my faith in him because he died for me. Jesus gives me his righteousness. Well, how do I know that I've arrived? I don't have to worry about arriving. I arrive the day I convert. The day I put my trust and my faith in Jesus, I've arrived. Now, my life will change, but that's not affecting my destination. That's just gratitude in my life for what Jesus has done for me. There's a huge difference there. we got to get out of this mentality of I'm working my way there and maybe I'll figure out if I'm good enough. No, we're not good enough. It's only Jesus, only faith in him. That's God's terms. That's what God wants for us. So before we even go any further, it's just this, are you willing? I, Paul says, hey, examine yourselves to see whether you're of the faith. He writes that to a church. So right now, before we go on in this series, where are you? Have you come to a point in your life where you've admitted your sin? Not just your sin, 
And our, because our culture has a tough time with this. Not just that you're guilty of sin against God and others, but that the right punishment for you is eternity away from God in hell. Are you willing to admit that? If you can't admit that, you can't become a believer. So admit that you've sinned against God and deserve the right punishment, the just punishment, is separation from God forever. That's what I deserve. Second, if you can admit that, then will you believe in Jesus? Will you put your faith, your trust, will you call out to him for salvation? He's the only way, your only chance. You can't make up for sin. Good things don't erase any sin. Good things are what you're supposed to do. You don't get extra credit for that. You have to believe in Jesus, trust Jesus, put your faith in Jesus alone and nothing else. And then when you do that, it'll show up in your life because you'll live differently. Sometimes that happens dramatically. Sometimes that happens slowly. Sometimes you just start seeing everything differently. You have different motivations for the good things that you might be doing. But I don't want to go any further in our series until we nail this down. So right now I want to give you an opportunity. I want to just take a moment and then I'll get back to EO3 before we close and just nail this down. Think back. Have you come to a point where you admit your sin, knowing you deserve hell, and the only chance to escape that, the only way you can be saved from your just penalty is by putting your faith, your belief in Jesus alone? Have you come to that spot? And if you haven't, I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. You can cry out to God just by saying this. You can pray this prayer on your own. Just make this your prayer. Let's bow our heads and just express this in prayer to God. Father God, I know that I've sinned against you. I admit it, and I understand that I deserve hell, separation from you forever because I violated your commands. But right now, Father, I'm putting my trust in your son, Jesus, and Jesus alone. He's the only way that I can be saved from the penalty of sin that I owe. I put my faith, my trust in Jesus right now. And God, I'm inviting you to come into my life through your spirit and help me to follow you. Help me to be who you want me to be in Christ's name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand today or anything like that, but there's something I want you to do. I want, we want to give you something, a packet of information that will help you uh, get started. You may say, yeah, I'm trusting Jesus, but i got a lot of questions. Pick up one of these packets. It will help you. There's a book in there that will help answer a lot of the main questions that people have. So service ends. I'm asking you, if you prayed that prayer, as far as you know, for the first time in your life to come up, there's a basket on either side, kind of a beige-colored basket on either side of the platform, and there's little packets in there. Just grab one of those and take it. Uh, you can also stop by room one and pick one up if you can't make your way down front, but we want you to have that. And uh, So, EO3. Just as, as I close here, Everyone on three, here's what this is all about. Every three or four years in sort of the pattern of our church, 
we stop, we pause what we're doing, and we try to figure out where God is leading us, where God is calling us, what God is calling us to. Is there some opportunity we have? What, what does God want us to do next for this season as a church? So that's what we're going to be looking at over the next now three weeks, is what we believe after prayer, after trying to figure out, you know, after reflecting where we believe God wants us to go for the next few years. So if you're watching online right now, we would love for you to, to be here if possible here at Grace because we actually have some information that we want to put in your hand that we want you to have. So for the next few weeks as we go through it, you'll know what we're talking about. So we'd love for you to be able to show up at Grace next week as we continue EO3, which stands for Everyone on Three, and that means three campuses, three goals, three years. That's what we'll be talking about, Everyone on Three. Let's stand together, and I'm going to pray. I think our music team's going to come out and, uh, and close us. Let's pray together. Father God in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for loving us. Lord, thank you for bringing us together as a church, and we know you've done that for a reason, and I pray, Lord, we pray that you give us wisdom to know how best that we can do church, and we can win people, and we can seek out the lost and give them a path by introducing them to you. Lord, help us to do that effectively. In Christ's name we pray.